Hi friends, this is Caitlin Matchy, and I would like to welcome you to The Thought Maze. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today we're going to be talking about a really incredible book called The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And before we get started, I would like to put out some um, pretty heavy trigger warnings for abuse and traumatic experiences. Not only will I talk a little bit about some of the numerous examples that are in the book, but related a little bit to my own experiences just because this book hits so close to home for me. So this book, The Body Keeps the Score, let me tell you that I have never had a book recommended to me so much. Since probably before I started the counseling program that I'm in now, I've had this book recommended to me no less than once per month, and it's not unwarranted. This book describes trauma probably the best of any sort of resource I have ever read. It's really incredible the work that Dr. Vanderkolk has done when it comes to trauma. So I originally had planned to cover this entire book in one podcast, and after going through and looking at everything I wanted to cover, I realized there is no way. So this is going to be part one of two of The Body Keeps the Score, and we will go over about the second half of the book next week. So just a little bit of a brief overview. Again, The Body Keeps the Score is authored by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He is a Dutch psychiatrist, but he is based out of Boston in the U.S. He is probably recognized as the foremost expert on trauma. And after reading this book, it is absolutely mind-blowing. So I can't imagine all the other work that he has completed. So... I don't even know where to start to summarize this book. I'll give you a couple little tidbits on kind of the major takeaways. And again, this is only the first half of the book, okay? The key takeaways that I have come up with, and then we'll talk a little bit more in depth on each of these kind of points. But the first thing that kind of really just hit me was that Dr. Vanderkoek is really trying to drill home that it's not just the symptoms that mental health experts need to be concerned about. It's the underlying cause. Trauma can come out in so many different ways, especially behaviorally. Why are they behaving this way? What's causing them to behave this way? We can treat the symptoms all day long, but until we figure out what's causing them, it's not going to do any good, right? Especially in children. Children react to trauma in some very volatile ways a lot of times. And the book comes up with multiple examples of this. And then also the importance of a person is not a diagnosis. You may have gone through life with all kinds of different labels. You know, friend, student, wife, mother father, uncle, aunt, cousin, whatever. But then you start adding on autistic, schizophrenic, alcoholic, drug addict, and it can be easy for you to incorporate those labels into how you see yourself. But even worse is other people can incorporate those labels into how they see you. And it's not fun, right? But you are not your diagnosis. 
your diagnosis is just a small piece of who you are. And I have a feeling I'm going to get on my soapbox here, so I'll try and keep it short. But either way, Dr. Vanderkolk really stresses that a person is not their diagnosis. And we need to look beyond the diagnosis and realize that the people that we treat as counselors, as mental health professionals, they are people. They have stories beyond the issues that they're experiencing. There is no one way to experience trauma. We'll go over some examples, and especially at the very end, I have a a really kind of sad example of this, but, you know, everyone experiences trauma differently, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually very uh, normal for your brain to find its own way to survive. One point that I really liked was that we fundamentally, when it comes to circling back to underlying causes, we need social change to help reduce trauma, especially in children. We have a lot of work that needs to be done on a social level when it comes to helping parents, providing resources for people to help these kids grow up in healthy, loving, less stressful environments. But on the plus side, I learned a lot in this book about how much children rely on their parents when it comes to their mental health. Children can experience some horrible things. And if they have a loving environment to come home to, parents who can help them deal with stress and trauma in a healthy way, many times they're going to be just fine. So there's a little bit of good news in that. But of course... The main, I guess, topic of this book is that your mind and your body are much more connected than you would like to think. You can experience all kinds of things, and if you don't work on it in your subconscious, in your conscious mind, whatever, and you just say, well, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to learn how to ignore it. Your body does not ignore it. Your mind and your body are in cahoots. I hate to say. And when it comes to mental health, if you don't process it in one way, the other way is going to catch up with you. And he talks a lot about, you know, again, how we all experience trauma differently. And it all comes back to evolutionary parts of our brains. He talks a little bit about fight, flight, and freeze. Or fight and flight are kind of come from one part of your brain. Freeze and collapse is kind of another part of your brain. And it really just depends on your options when it comes to experiencing traumatic events. Originally, you're probably going to try fight or flight, which comes from the mammalian part of our brain, the part that that mammals obtain more, where that's going to be, if we can, our first point of action is to either fight our danger or run away. And then sometimes we can't do that. And then we kind of regress down to a very basic part of our brain, evolutionary-wise, and that's the reptilian part. And that sounds really stupid, I know. But it's a very old, very basic part of our brain that's just responsible for the absolute basic needs. And that's when we'll freeze or collapse. Reptiles, a lot of times, will play dead whenever they are dealing with dangerous situations. And when we 
don't feel like we have the, a choice to fight or run away. Sometimes that's what we'll do. We'll freeze up or some people will faint. And that's just another part of the brain trying to protect itself. Really, really crazy, interesting stuff. And that's just the beginning. Oh my gosh, now we get to the really good stuff. Um, how the trauma is stored in the body. Oh, and how it affects our bodies and our brains. This stuff, I nerd over this stuff so bad. Because not only is this something that I experience myself being a survivor of childhood abuse who has dealt with trauma her entire life, but I want to be a trauma counselor. So this is really, really fascinating to me. But it's crazy the things that our brains are capable of and the things that it tries to do to protect us. So in The Body Keeps the Score, one of the first experiments per se that Dr. Vanderkoek does. He used to work at the Department of uh, Veterans Affairs back in the day and worked with veterans a lot who had experienced trauma in, you know, Vietnam, um, World War II, and he worked really closely with men who really didn't know how to go about their lives anymore after experiencing what they had experienced and at the time, we didn't really know much about PTSD. And so he really tried to dig deep on what these men were experiencing on a physiological level. And how could we even begin to help them? And it was really fascinating. He told the story about giving this group of veterans a Rorschach test. Now, some of you may just know that as an inkblot test, you know, where you have the cards with the random splats of ink or whatever, and you're like, what does this look like? So he gives these veterans this Rorschach test, and one particular card had an effect on every person in this study. Now, there was nothing special about this card. This card was nonsense, like the rest of any inkblot test cards. But for some reason, this one particular card, I think the vast majority, and I can't remember the numbers right off the top of my head, but the vast majority of the veterans who saw this particular card were triggered, and they saw horrific things in this nonsense ink. And then the few who weren't triggered completely lost their ability to imagine anything. So us humans were designed, the reason why Rorschach tests exist is that we humans are designed to find meaning in nonsense, in chaos. So when we see an ink blot, our brain tries and comes up with some sort of picture. But these handful of men who saw this particular ink blot completely lost that ability. They just said, it's an ink blot. There's nothing there. And I don't think the book really even explained. I don't even know if they know why this happened. But it's just wild to think. This example of how these men's brains worked, how one particular little card completely threw their brains off balance. It's just wild. And then another study. 
This one was on trauma in a general population. So in the book, he speaks mostly about this one particular woman who had lost her daughter in a car accident while she was with her a while before, like 13 years previously. And she still struggled a lot with that trauma. She had also had a stillbirth as a result of the car accident as well. So Dr. Vanderkolk and his colleagues brought this woman in and put her in an fMRI machine to map her brain. While listening to a recording of somebody kind of describing a random traumatic event from the perspective of a child. And while these people are listening to this recording, their brains are being scanned. So I'm sure many of you have heard that we have two parts of our brains, right? Left brain and right brain. And the left side of the brain is more logical. It has a lot of our more rational processes involved. And the right side of the brain is very emotional. So what happened when these people were listening to this story was their left side of their brain just shuts off. Well, I guess I should explain that the story triggered them, right? So in this woman's case, it triggered the memory of the car accident. So the left side of her brain just shuts off. She literally loses the ability to logic her way out of the memory. There's a little section of this part of the brain called Broca's area, and that is the part of the brain that's responsible for speech. It shuts off. So when a person is being triggered, they literally cannot talk about what's going on with them. Now, while this is going on, the right side of the brain, the part of the brain that deals with emotions, it's, it's processing just fine. But in fact, what it's doing, it's processing the event like the event is happening at that very moment. Not that the event is a memory, but that the event is literally happening at that moment. And a part of that side of the brain is the amygdala. The, uh, it's the part of the brain that processes emotions. The amygdala just carries on as if the event has never happened before and is just happening for the first time. And let me tell you how my mind was blown when I read this part of the book, because it makes so much sense. If I am ever triggered, I'll tell the story of once I was working and I had my headset on and my husband was trying to give me a card that had come in the mail, I believe. And I was working downstairs, so he kind of tossed the card my direction instead of walking downstairs. But he hit me in the headset with the card and it made a really loud bang. And that triggered me because as a child, I had things thrown at me a lot and things thrown at my head. And when I'm triggered, it's like your mind goes blank, but all you do is feel pure panic or fear. And a lot of times my husband, if he notices, he'll try to get me to tell him what's going on. And I literally cannot speak. I can't describe what's happening. And reading about this fMRI study, it makes so much sense. The part of my brain that can make sense of things isn't even working at that moment. 
So that is absolutely fascinating to me. Absolutely fascinating. And it also makes sense that whenever I was in trauma therapy, I kept a journal of my triggering events and I had to write down sensations, things I felt when I was triggered. And it just so happened that because I knew I needed to do that, whenever I was triggered, I would start to pay attention to what I was feeling. And that actually would help me kind of level out quicker because you're not really trying to logic anything. You're just paying attention. You're noticing sensations, right? And that very slowly helps get that left side of your brain back online so that you can pass out, out of your trigger. So really, really fascinating stuff. Another study that he talked about was they had a machine where these participants would lay in it and it had, it projected an image of like a cartoon man and he would either walk directly towards them with eye contact or would walk at them from like a 45 degree angle. And people who have experienced trauma don't really love eye contact. It's, it's a little threatening to them. So in the cartoon study, whenever the cartoon would walk directly at them, typical people who have not experienced trauma, when somebody walks directly at them, they, their brains start to kind of investigate. They start to make judgments about this person. They develop a curiosity. But when people who have experienced trauma would see somebody walking directly at them with eye contact, they immediately go into defensive mode. Now, that didn't happen whenever the person came at a 45 degree angle. And again, makes so much sense. Whenever I read that, I started to imagine a person just walking directly at me. And my immediate response, even if I wouldn't actually do it, but my inward response is that I want to cower. And Dr. Vanderkoek actually mentions cowering in this particular experiment, that that would be a common reaction. And I don't love eye contact either. Eye contact is very uncomfortable to me. I have to really force myself to make eye contact with people. And I always expected that it was just a part of my trauma. My abuser would often make me look him in the eyes whenever he was berating me or before he would smack me or whatever. So it may be a little bit of both, but it's interesting. This study just shows me that a lot of the things I experience are normal for me, at least, for those of us who have experienced trauma. Now let's switch gears a little bit because this book kind of hops back and forth between how adults experience trauma and how children experience trauma. And it's a very, very different thing for a child. He talks a lot about what's called attachment theory. And children develop from an early age a certain kind of attachment to their caregivers. Now, in a perfect world, in a healthy relationship, a child would develop what's called a secure attachment. That's, they feel comfortable and safe with their caregiver, and it gives them support to become a well-functioning, independent person. So that's a perfect world. Then you have anxious attachment. That's the kind of attachment where a child can get really clingy. And a lot of times these attachments, they last throughout life or at least until you really work on it. Um, you have avoidant 
attachment where the child just doesn't seem to care whether their caregiver is there or not. And they pretty much go through life avoiding relationships with other people. But then he talks a lot about what's called disorganized attachment. And it's really heartbreaking to understand what disorganized attachment really means to a child. So children are on a fundamental level designed to crave the attention, the affection, the love of their parents. But sometimes the environment that they're in doesn't give them that. Sometimes their parents aren't safe for them. And disorganized attachment is a child craving that affection from an unsafe person and knowing that the one person who is supposed to keep them safe is not safe and how it can really confuse them and twist them and they don't really know how to react to people. They can swing back and forth between anxious and avoidant and really it just depends on the relationships with their caregivers at a very early age. And again, these attachments, they can really last throughout life. So chronic stress and trauma, it can really affect you on not just your brain, but your, your body. We talked a little bit about the strong connection between your brain and your body. And a lot of times, if you don't, really sit down and try and work on the trauma that you've experienced and you just try and lock it up in your head, your body will often show symptoms. Unfortunately, you can't really escape trauma. You can't wish it away. You have to deal with it at some point. Otherwise, your body will deal with it for you. So Dr. Vanderkoek names a lot of physical symptoms that show up in people who just really don't process their own trauma. Headaches, asthma attacks, a lot of gastrointestinal issues. He names alexithymia, which is a disorder that basically it's the inability to name your emotions. You have muscle tension or tightness, tightness in chest, nausea, and there's no physical reason for these symptoms. So if you know someone like that, it may be interesting to see what their background is. So we as humans, we are made to attempt to save ourselves on some level. Our brains will do whatever it can to survive. And sometimes that means coming up with coping mechanisms, whether healthy or unhealthy. And many times our coping mechanisms are quite unhealthy. For children, if they've experienced trauma, they can come up with all sorts of behavioral issues, wildly volatile behaviors, throwing things, screaming, fighting, biting, kicking. But then children are also extremely resilient, if in the right environment. Dr. Vanderkoek tells a story about a little boy, I forget if he was five or six, when 9-11 happened in New York. He lived in New York during 9-11. And of course, he was just as affected by it as anyone else. And Dr. Vanderkoek saw a drawing that this little boy had done of the towers. And the drawing was horrific of people jumping out, 
But at the bottom of the towers, the little boy had drawn a little circle. Dr. Vandercook asked him, what's this? The little boy said it's a trampoline so that the next time people have to jump, they have somewhere safe to land. And this little boy was in a very loving, healthy environment and he moved on and was just fine. He used his imagination because he had that freedom to reconcile the horrific things that he had seen so that he could process it and move along. Children, luckily, are extremely resilient when it comes to trauma if they're in the right space for it. But for adults, it can be much more difficult. Dr. Vanderkolk, especially whenever talking about the veterans that he had worked with at the VA, explained that for many of them, their life ended at the point of trauma. He said he worked with a group of veterans from World War II, and they gave him a watch, a, f a field watch, I believe, from their time over in Europe. But he just marveled at their life had pretty much stopped at that point. They forgot how to live past the point of trauma. Adults also tend to have issues with other relationships after they've experienced trauma. And his explanation of it is really interesting and it makes a lot of sense. Because after we have experienced trauma, if it's not something that we've really processed, our brains are on edge all the time thinking that we're in danger. The other shoe's going to drop at any point in time now. Always looking over our shoulders. And when your brain is in that survival mode 24-7, does it really have time to process deeper emotions, love, intimacy, friendship? It's actually really sad, but true. A lot of times adults but children as well experience a spectrum, but a lot of times it could be one spec one side of the spectrum or another. You have what's called depersonalization. You probably know it as dissociation. So dissociation a lot of times is kind of when you sort of space out, you kind of go numb. Depersonalization is a little bit more extreme than that. Depersonalization is literally when your brain and this is, was explained in the book through another MRI scan, almost the entire brain just shuts off. They don't feel anything. So you have that on one side of the spectrum. Or you can also deal with extreme volatility, mood swings, always being on edge. He tells the story about a woman who really hadn't had much experience with relationships, or at least hadn't had a lot of luck. But she had met a man who was a friend, decided to kind of give it a shot. They had a date, went back to her apartment, fell asleep together on her bed. And in the middle of the night, he brushed her in his sleep and she completely lost it and started beating him and screaming at him. These are all things that people with trauma experience. But it's interesting that it seems like a lot of times it's one or another. Not always, but sometimes. But because trauma shows up in such different ways, adults and children many times can be mistakenly diagnosed with multiple disorders before we really get down to what's going on. ADHD, depression, anxiety, PTSD. Kids can be 
diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder. And until you start to look at why they act the way they do, they're never going to make any progress. I've actually had two professors who summed this up really, really well. They said, if you see somebody come in and they have three, four, five different disorders, you don't have anxiety, you have trauma. Just manifested in many different ways. And to make it even worse, symptoms can really vary based on the type of trauma. Symptoms due to child abuse tend to be much more complicated than symptoms as a result of a natural disaster, which brings up the concept of two different types of PTSD. There's CPTSD versus traditional PTSD. So CPTSD is not an actual official diagnosis. Dr. Vanderkoek talks about for a long time he has advocated for its own diagnosis because CPTSD, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine explained it really well, that CPTSD is a death by a thousand cuts versus PTSD is death by getting hit by a bus. CPTSD is long-term trauma. Trauma that happens day after day after day after day for months, years. Versus PTSD, which is many times one major event. And they manifest in very different ways. But CPTSD isn't recognized. It's either PTSD or nothing. And Dr. Vanderkoek talks about what a disservice the mental health field does to these people who have experienced trauma over a lifetime and their symptoms may just be a little different than somebody with traditional PTSD. And until you really understand a disorder, you can't really figure out how to treat it. So maybe, and I plan on advocating for this throughout my career as a mental health advocate, I'm, I'm going to advocate for a CPTSD diagnosis, not only because it's personal to me, because if anything, that's probably what I would have, but it makes sense because they're very different. And the people who experience these different types of trauma experience them differently. So I'll get off my soapbox on that one. So we talked a little bit about dissociation and depersonalization and that it's, it's a survival strategy. The brain is trying to protect itself, and it's just another symptom. It can be a little scary to dissociate, but luckily Dr. Vanderkoek actually talks about working with a woman who um, would dissociate a lot during sessions because she had pretty much repressed all of her memories of trauma from when she was a child. And when it came to attempting to relive those moments in sessions, her brain just couldn't handle it and would just shut off. So he talked about rhythm being a major key in helping somebody come out of dissociation or depersonalization and tapping pressure points. My trauma therapist, because I, I deal with dissociation, especially when I'm extremely stressed, said rhythm 
is crucial to help yourself come out of a period of dissociation. So she told me to clap. So I would clap jingle bells whenever I would feel like I'm starting to dissociate. And it works. Kind of helps your brain come back online since we learned that depersonalization is literally your brain just shutting off. But dissociation is not healthy, even though your brain is trying to do what it can to protect itself. Dissociation keeps you in a holding pattern. You don't have the ability to take on new emotions, even healthy ones. And the more you dissociate, the harder it is to open back up to both good and bad emotions, which are a normal and healthy part of life. So we have talked about the down and dirty, right? The bad stuff, what it's like to experience trauma. But then how do we fix it? First and foremost, it is crucial to acknowledge the trauma, not only to yourself, but we as a society need to acknowledge that trauma exists. In the book, Dr. Vanderkoek, while he was still working at the VA, when he was doing his experiments on veterans with PTSD, he writes to the VA for a grant to study more. And the VA says, PTSD isn't a part of the VA story, isn't a part of the VA mission. So he resigned right then. Luckily, we're getting better now at acknowledging trauma that veterans experience whenever they're deployed. And we're starting to get better at acknowledging the trauma that female veterans experience while in the military, even if they're not deployed. But boy, do we have a long way to go, especially when it comes to offering resources to these service members. But we have at least started to make a step forward by acknowledging. Dr. Vanderkoek talks about one of the first psychiatry textbooks that he had whenever he was studying said that father-daughter sexual relationships had no link to psychiatric issues later on. Um, yeah, I'm calling bull on that one. And he does too. So, beginning to acknowledge the basics that these things happen and that they are bad is going to be the first step to healing and to developing treatments for people who have experienced awful things. In the middle of a trigger or when you're trying to dissociate or maybe if you're having a panic attack, it can be really hard to know how to snap out of that. And a lot of people have trouble being in therapy discussing their trauma because it brings up some really bad stuff and it can really harm you. So knowing how to counteract these negative effects is going to be extremely important. And one really good way to do that is called grounding. So basically it helps your brain distinguish between the past and the present because your brain, when triggered, doesn't know the difference. And there are so many ways to ground. Dr. Vanderkoek talks about feeling your space. So when you're sitting, feeling yourself pressed against the chair, feeling your feet touching the floor, feeling the air moving around you, feeling the temperature of the room on your skin. 
You can hold ice in your hands. You can trace your feet in your mind. You can have a particular object nearby that you can hold and focus on it. Some people have gems or crystals in their offices just for this purpose. You can do different breathing exercises. Boxed breathing is really good where you're going. Inhale. One, two, three, four. Hold. One, two, three, four. Exhale. One, two, three, four. Hold. One, two, three, four. That's boxed breathing. You can stretch. You can exercise. You can rub your hands together or place your hands on your heart. Count backwards from 20. If you happen to be outside, take your shoes off and walk around on different surfaces or touch the grass or dirt with your hands. Any of those things will help your brain distinguish what's real and what's not real. And when you're helping a person relive some of the worst experiences of their life, it will help them feel safe. There are so many different treatments that can be used. Of course, right now, we are in the age of, unfortunately, uh, over-medication. And I'm not saying medication's bad. Medication has its place. I'm on antidepressants right now. I'm luckily, hopefully, going to be getting off of them in a, about a week, or at least starting. They're a good starting point sometimes when you have nothing, when you can't even get a foothold. But it's not good to rely on them either. An example from the book is that half a million children take antipsychotic drugs. And guess what? Children from low-income families are four times as likely to receive these medications. Why? Because these drugs calm these kids down and help level out their behavioral issues. But it completely ignores why they're having these behavioral issues. Outside of the box therapies are extremely important. And that's something that I plan on focusing on whenever I start practicing. The book talks about a 15-year-old girl who basically had shut everybody out of her life, had no friends, was completely antisocial, basically acted like she felt no joy. And then she started doing equine therapy, working with horses. She, she groomed and took care of a horse. And later on, when she became a successful college student, Dr. Vanderkoek asked her what helped the most, and she said, the horse. I'm actually doing a project right now on animal-assisted therapy. I think these types of therapies are going to be extremely important when working with a population that has seen some of the worst that humanity has to offer. Well, I think I'm going to wrap that up here. I have so much more to talk about. But we'll talk more next week. But I would really, really like for you to reach out to me and let me know what you think so far. Did any of this sound familiar to you? Was any of it helpful? And of course, I still need survivor stories. Please reach out to me at thethoughtmaze at gmail.com or reach out to me on social media. I'm on TikTok and Instagram at thethoughtmaze. So I did promise you one last story. And let me tell you, the story is so sad. So if you have a problem with listening to sad animal stories, you might just want to go ahead and hop off now. So Ivan Pavlov, who may sound familiar to you based on Pavlov's dogs, right? He basically pioneered classical conditioning when he learned 
that he could get the dogs to salivate based on ringing a bell. Well, there was another experiment that isn't quite as known that Dr. Vanderkoek talks about in his book. So Pavlov had his dogs down in the basement of his lab, and once the river near his lab flooded and actually flooded into the basement, and the dogs were trapped down there and could not escape. Now, luckily, they all survived, but after the flooding ended, the dogs completely changed. Some of them were extremely fearful. They just cowered in the corner of their cage. Some became extremely aggressive. Some just acted like nothing mattered anymore. Some had what he called paradoxical inhibition. So basically, loud noises didn't bother them, but soft noises did. And some of them reached the ultra-paradoxical stage where they actually responded positively to negative stimulus and negative to positive stimulus. Either way, none of the dogs responded to trauma the same way. And if it's that way with dogs, of course it's going to be that way with people. I would really like to encourage you to check out The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And, of course, come back next week when hopefully we can talk a little bit more about self-care and some treatments for experiencing trauma. I would like to thank you all so much for listening to me this week. And of course, please subscribe, leave me any sorts of comments or feedback. Check out my pages on social media, please. I would like to end this week with a quote from the great John Green. There is hope, even when your brain tells you there isn't. Thank you so much, my friends, and I will talk to you next week. The Thought Maze is recorded and produced by Caitlin Matchy. Please remember, if you have an immediate mental health need, the mental health hotline is available anytime. Please call or text 988.